Good morning. Please take your seats. In the matter of Her Majesty the Queen versus J.F. For the appellant, Her Majesty the Queen, Justin Tremblay, and Nicholas Abran. For the intervener, Attorney General of Ontario, Tracy Kozlowski and Samuel Green. For the intervener, Attorney General of British Columbia, Liliane Banturakis and Leslie A. Ruzica. For the intervener, Attorney General of Alberta, Matthew W. Greener. For the respondent, J.F. Diego Gramaggio. For the intervener, Criminal Lawyers Association of Ontario, Christine Mainville and Andrew Burgess. For the intervener, Association Québécoise des Avocats et Avocates de la Défense, Jean-Sébastien Saint-Amand, Guinois. For the intervener, Association des Avocats de la Défense de Montréal, Laval-Longueuil, Walid Hijazi, and Julia Blais-Quintal. Be aware that there is a publication ban under Section 486.4 of the Criminal Code in this matter. Mr. Tremblay. Thank you, Chief Justice, Justices. Good morning. This case gives us uh, an opportunity. This is what we're going to argue. Uh, raises three issues. First, how to deal with inaction by the respondent. And that is, uh, in a second trial, can there be a judicial review of previous conduct of the respondent in order to determine whether his action or inaction indicates a waiver of objecting to a period of time that the first trial took. The second issue at bar, like the Court of Appeal, we believe that the Jordan clock on a second trial, a retrial, has to begin when the retrial is ordered by the Court of Appeal. And that will be dealt with by my colleague, Mr. Abran. And the third issue will also be dealt with by my colleague. And that is the question of what framework applies to the timelines of a previous trial. Our position on the first issue is that in our opinion, even after Jordan, and even when the time frames for the first trial exceed the Jordan framework, it is possible to fault the respondent for his inaction. And as I said previously, the clock starts again at zero at the beginning of the new trial. That is most consistent with Mr. Tremblay. Mr. Tremblay, sorry for interrupting you. That inaction by the respondent, what's an accused supposed to do? Is it your view that once pleadings uh, are wrapped up on the first trial, just before the judge deliberates, 
in your so, opinion, should the accused have to say, in case you don't acquit me, judge, I'd like you to order a stay of proceedings. What, practically speaking, is an accused supposed to do in a situation like the one before us today? In our view, there is no prerequisite uh, for the accused to raise their hand and say, look, if there's going to be an equipment, I'm going to raise uh, the question of delay. Uh, but uh, Jordan calls for proactivity, and so practically speaking, if the accused does nothing during the first trial, if the accused does not do anything official, uh, like a motion on appeal. I'm not saying that it would be easy, but it is possible. So if the accused does not act in a timely fashion at the beginning of the second proceedings, it is allowable to infer from that inaction or, or to hold that inaction against him. So if the accused feels that there, his rights have been infringed, he should act. He has to do something, something official. Well, what do you mean official? Before the second trial starts? That's what I'm trying to understand. Because here, if it had happened during the 62-month uh, period, I'm not saying 72, there was no such period, but what is an accused supposed to do to, uh, to not be faulted for inaction? Well, if you take this case, there was no motion at trial and no motion at trial either. So the factors we would suggest uh, to assess inaction, we think at minimum, when the second trial started, when the accused first appeared in August 2018, so when the dates were first set, not six months later. So we don't have an automatic recipe here. Uh, the, it will all depend on the circumstances. Those have to be weighed and assessed. When there was a previous trial, you have to ask, was the delay, was the inaction reasonable in the circumstances of the case at bar? And that's what we're asking. And what we're saying is that in this case, it was unreasonable to wait six months into the second trial. Mr. Tremblay, you're talking about inaction. But when I read your factum, you don't talk about silence or waiver at least not uh, systematically, you don't mention waiver. So I'm wondering if you draw any distinction given the case law on silence that plays against your theory of the case a little bit. The case law on waiver, uh, clear, unequivocal uh, waiver, so that could play against you too. So are you trying to distinguish between inaction and those other concepts? And if so, how does that fit? into the consideration of the accumulated delays uh, at the, during the first trial. You're right, Justice, we don't talk about silence. We're talking about acceptance and waiver. We're talking more about that. Of course, it has to be clear, informed, and unequivocal, but it's our position that at some point, delay can become so lengthy, it's a two-edged sword, but it can become so lengthy that it enables us to infer, infer that there was an implicit acceptance of the delay or a waiver, if you will, 
it's not a constitutional standard under 11b of the charter but it can certainly be something that's examined in connection with 11b and as i said before our goal is not to say that inaction or failure to act with respect to previous delay that that does not prevent the whole issue from being examined it's our argument that the court of appeal says uh, following jordan once the ceiling has been exceeded the court of appeal says you can't even claim that there was any acceptance of the delay so in our opinion it's true that the case law on waiver at trial is perhaps favorable to our argument but inaction at appeal under the raba case is more favorable to our argument and it fits in better with what we're suggesting because our review of the case law has not turned up a case coming from this court where that issue is dealt with squarely the question of what do you do about delay at trial when it's only raised on retrial six months into that retrial so we're trying to suggest a new framework which would be a, an evolution of the principles uh, governing implicit waiver and it would represent a, a, a construction or an evolution based on the fact that the 11b principles uh, are such that it's perhaps not appropriate to raise this issue for the first time on appeal Mr. Tremblay, is there any issue here about who is responsible for there being a second trial? In this case, the accused was acquitted, and then the Crown appealed, and on appeal, a new trial was ordered. If the accused had been found guilty, and the accused had appealed, and the Court of Appeal had ordered a retrial, would there be any difference there? Is there any difference depending on who's responsible for the second trial? In this case, it came from the Crown, but would it be different if it, was, uh, if it came from the accused? Well, that's an interesting question. I'll come back to this later, but if it was apparent that the, there was some suggestion that the law was being manipulated, if it was a strategic thing, of course, uh, this is not a criticism. The accused is entitled to... Uh, to pin his hopes on, acquit on acquittal uh, rather than a stay of proceedings uh, if there's some, you, could, you could look at whether there was any tactics involved Is, it, was the accused trying to manipulate the law to his benefit which would be uh, not a proper re result in justice but our position is that uh, regardless of whoever appeals the trial result uh, that is an opportunity and, and we're not saying that it's e easy but it gives the accused another opportunity to raise his hand and say I'd like the issue of delay examined uh, a judicial review of the issue of delay and as I said it wouldn't be easy uh, but it could be done. It's another opportunity that could work in the accused's favor. Uh, 
the accused on the retrial could say, look, I raised this issue at appeal and it was dismissed. But So what we're asking for is a judicial review of all the circumstances. A court should take into account all the relevant factors in order to uh, establish whether or not the conduct of the accused, the accused's failure to object at trial, when the, when the timelines are set for the first trial, uh, the court could now determine whether the accused's failure to act at a, at a, in a timely fashion, whether that amounts to uh, some form of acceptance or waiver. And that, as we said, that doesn't prevent any examination of the actual delays experienced. So we're not talking about a waiver of rights. We're talking about a waiver of the consideration of the time taken for the first trial. So that's why we're suggesting uh, an examination of all the circumstances rather than a hard and fast rule. I'd like to come back to some of the factual matters that in our view are relevant and might uh, solidify our position. Now, the elements that should be reviewed are that the first trial was a little particular. It was supposed to take place over two days, and in the end, it took a little over a year. There were adjournments, but despite this uh, unusual schedule, which might lead you to believe that there might have been a problem, a person who felt their rights were violated could have raised that issue. There was no formal action, no motion, nothing in the first trial and nothing uh, afterwards. And so if you look at the case, you'll see that this was never an argument put forward by the accused. In retrial, and this is what is most important in our opinion, a new trial is ordered in June 2018 by the Court of Appeal, and between June and December, over six months, within an 18-month uh, ceiling, there's no action. A motion is, uh, is uh, moved at the end of December 2018. But you have to understand the context here. When this uh, motion was presented, the dates had been fixed. The trial date had been chosen. And so there, two months passed between the date of the trial and the uh, motion question but isn't it true that after the motion was was presented, the trial was moved forward? Answer, that's true. It was moved forward by a few days. It's also interesting that, and if you look at R7, page 93 of our second volume, the accused announced that there were no preliminary motions. We think that is an important circumstance 
because there was a, an agreement to this delay, there didn't seem to be any worry or concern about this delay at that time. If you look at the facts, also, during the second trial over 10 days in Montreal, which is a very busy judicial district, the anticipated end of the proceedings was a little over 10 months later. So we're halfway over the uh, Jordan ceiling, and I think that is something that has to be examined also when we try to determine if there was a kind of opportunism or a strategy behind this motion. Those are the facts that I wanted to draw your attention to. As I mentioned earlier in my answers to the questions that you asked, is this is what we are asking. We are asking for the Crown to be able to perform a judicial review of this inaction. It's important to be clear. We're not stating that there was a waiver. We're not trying to reverse the burden. In fact, the Crown will have to prove that circumstances allowed an inference of uh, a waiver. And if the circumstances do not justify this uh, examination, then we won't have to examine whether an accused accepted a delay. I'd like to draw your attention to my condensed book, tab 2, the principle established by the appeal court that we are in disagreement with. And so there are excerpts from the, uh, appeal, the appellate decision, tab 2. Paragraph 60, 64, and 65, the Court of Appeal talks about uh, the law and the fact of, uh, of um, making a motion uh, very late. And so, in paragraph 65, the court says, in applying the transitory measure, inaction can be assimilated with a, a, a waiver. And if you look at paragraph 67, the Court of Appeal says, for cases that are not uh, covered by the transitional period, it is no longer possible to invoke inaction or to fault the accused for inaction. And in paragraphs 68 and 69, it explains why. It says, this is no longer something that you can do after Jordan. Because this idea of, uh, of uh, reviewing prejudice under Jordan no longer applies. Our understanding of Jordan is that the ceiling, when it is uh, surpassed, you can assume that there is a violation of guaranteed rights under the Constitution. So you can't push forward the reasonableness of the delay by saying there is no prejudice, but this idea of prejudice is, no, is not exactly eliminated from the analysis. If you, look, if you look at paragraph 69 and 70, 
there's a, this limit that is considered absolute. In other words, if the Jordan ceiling is exceeded in the first trial, then it's over. You can no longer fault the accused for their inaction. We have some trouble with the, these principles. There's an undue emphasis on prejudice. Other considerations justified and justify the examination of the tardiness of a motion. And there's also the consequence of this interpretation. And with all due respect, what we see in paragraphs uh, 69 and 70, what we infer is that exceeding the Jordan ceiling in a first trial would be a functional equivalent of an acquisitive uh, principle or elimination of the right uh, to prosecute. In other words, if the ceiling is exceeded in the first trial, then it's almost taken for granted that there will be a stay of proceedings if there's a retrial or a second trial. Question. So you argue that the Court of Appeal seeming, seems to indicate that the second trial is uh, dead in the water if it exceeds 62 months and that the exercise of, of appeal will lead to nothing and that the die is cast as soon as you've exceeded the Jordan uh, ceiling. Is that what you're arguing? Answer, yes. And I can also identify the passages in my condensed book to that effect, but that is our argument. If uh, a stay of proceedings is uh, taken for granted after the first trial, then why go to appeal? What is the point? if there's no effective point. So this is an appeal in June 2018, a new trial was ordered, but in the second trial, the Court of Appeal said no, the delay was unreasonable in any case. And so there's this uh, jurisdictional issue here. The Court of Appeal handed down a decision, but the delay was too long. Even the first uh, judge had too long a delay. And so there's, all of these issues lead to a jurisdictional question here. So regardless of the outcome of the first trial, it should simply lead to a stay of proceedings. And we find that problematic. Question. To avoid this kind of stillborn second trial situation, if I can use that expression, if you turn the clock back to zero, you're saying that we have to completely ignore any delay that occurred beforehand in the first trial? Is there no distinction to be made between a 15-month delay and a 60-month delay? You're really turning back the clock and only looking at the first uh, step of the second trial. There's no margin at all here. I ask the question because if you look at uh, jurisprudence and even the interveners from other provinces say, no, there is a little room for maneuver here. 
I'd like to know what you think of that. Answer. I'll answer your question in two parts. When it comes to the waiver, I think that the length of the delay must be examined. So the delay in the first trial, I was suggesting that there should be a review that looks at uh, the interests of justice and the confidence of the public. So you have to look at the delay and the reason why the delay occurred. And my friend also suggests that within the framework, there should be an assessment of the delay, of the nature of the delay. In order to assess the delay, what we're saying is it's one factor that should be examined. So a court might say, okay, the delays in the first trial were so long that it does not seem right to fault the accused for their inaction. At the same time, a long period of inaction a long, a very excessive delay should lead the accused to act to defend their right. Question. Just to follow up on uh, Justice Kazarer's question, assuming that we accept your argument that the clock goes back to zero for the retrial or for the second trial, and assuming that we assume that the accused has waived their rights because they didn't defend those rights uh, in the first trial. Here's my question. Okay, so you start the clock at zero, but many interveners argue that you still have to keep in mind the nature of the first trial. So if the delays exceeded the presumed uh, Jordan ceilings, even if uh, there was no motion for a state of proceedings, you can't just ignore what happened. So can you not uh, start the clock at zero, but also take into account the delays of the first trial? How could we give clear directives to a trial judge to keep all of these things in mind when there's a motion for a stay of proceedings in a retrial. Maybe this is a, the, a harder question to answer, but should a second trial be shorter? Should there normally not be a preliminary inquiry for a second trial? Are there fewer voir dires? How? Does all of that come into this analysis? And should it only be part of the analysis when a retrial takes a very long time, or should it happen automatically at the beginning of a retrial? Answer. The first step, we believe, is that if, uh, if you agree with, with our argument, if the Crown says, we have to look at the uh, long period of inaction. One of the parameters that we're suggesting is to look at the length of the delay. So not only the length of the delay, but also the reason behind the delay. If it's a delay caused by the Crown because the case was badly prepared, if 
there were delays that were caused by the crown then at that stage the judge could say no we must look at these delays and uh, my colleague will discuss this for example so there's a lot that's unpredictable about that then for example if the second trial were to last six months that's extremely reasonable if the accused were were to move for a stay of proceedings after six months when the second trial was coming to an end and the accused said but look at the first trial when I didn't ask for a stay uh, look how long it took uh, so does it have to get close to the ceiling for the second trial before a stay of proceedings can be ordered or not well that's the second part of my answer there could be a Jordan analysis at the second trial and in our view among other things if you were below the ceiling like in your example and the question was was the delay clearly longer than it should have been well then you could look at what happened at, at the first trial there was a pre-trial there were a lot of questions like you could look into why the first trial took so long so we're not saying completely disregard what happened at the first trial you would really have to take a look at all the timelines if if a motion were made at the second trial but you so you could ask is it excessive taking into account what happened at the first trial even if the second trial isn't so extremely long and all we're saying about the delays from the first trial when the issues raised at the second trial is that it's not the Jordan analysis that applies it's something different so we're not saying you can never consider what happened at the first trial uh, when the issues raised at a second trial the second trial does have to look back on what happened at the first trial so that's our answer now I'd like to leave a bit of time for my colleague uh, our position I, I kind of revealed it in answering your questions but the Crown can request a judicial review of the delays and that's based on existing principles at trial there is acceptance of the principle of implicit acceptance or implicit waiver it has to be clear and informed and unequivocal of course but there are other considerations that uh, go to whether or not uh, such a motion can be accepted when it's raised late for the first time particularly at a second trial so the there's the issue of the closest judge the judge with the closest relationship to the facts uh, and that's lost if the issue is raised before a new judge it should be raised before the the trial judge the trial judge the first trial judge has a much closer relationship with the facts and how the parties behaved and so on so all the more reason for our argument to be upheld and if this issues raised at a second trial in our view 
they're, they're, a, a party shouldn't be allowed to change their strategy and come up with new a new theory of the no. case or what have you. There are, there are strategic considerations. And in this case, the Court of Appeal cast doubt on the, on the purpose of the equipment. They said that there probably shouldn't have been an acquittal. It should have been a stay of proceedings. So I don't want to be critical here, but regardless of what the Court of Appeal said, uh, they said the result should have been a stay of proceedings uh, under Jordan. So what we're saying is that if there's to be any consideration of the accused's in action, it has to be done by a judge. So you have to look, in our view, at the nature of the inaction. In this case, uh, it, the issue was raised six months after the start of the second trial. Uh, it would have been more timely to raise it at the beginning when the timelines for the second trial were being set. Well, just so it's clear who, in your view, what is the earliest date at which the accused should have raised his argument under 11b because we know that he was acquitted, acquitted, acquitted in February 2017. The Crown got a retrial ordered in June 2018. So at what point in time do you feel the accused should have raised, initially raised, his 11b argument? Well, if he felt that his rights had been infringed upon, it should have been when the verdict deliberations began in, in 2016. Yeah, but that was before Jordan had been issued. That's right. It was issued during the verdict deliberations. But my friend says that was an excessive delay. But it wasn't ex ex excessive between 2017 and 2018. It was, if it wasn't excessive back then, what made it excessive later? Why didn't he feel, why didn't the accused feel that his rights had been infringed upon earlier? It's our position that the accused always had a duty to look for a remedy for this perceived violation. So the party who feels their rights have been infringed upon has to do something. Fundamentally, that's our position. You have to do something if you feel your rights have been infringed upon. If the accused felt that the delay had been excessive, he should have done something about it. Well, that brings me back to my very first question. Is it your claim that before the trial judge leaves the courtroom to take the, to, to deliberate, the accused does the accused have to raise their hand and say, if you're not going to acquit me, I want to stay of proceedings? No, that's not what we're arguing. We're saying that as soon as the accused feels that his constitutional rights are jeopardized or have been infringed upon, then he has to do something. And if he didn't, doesn't do it at trial, he has to do it at appeal. He didn't have to do it at the trial. But if he didn't, doesn't do it at the trial, he should have done it at the 55 month, 55th month or whenever, by, by the appeal, uh, at least. Just to follow up on my colleague's question, Justice Cote's question, you seem to be taking for granted 
that this was, or assuming that there's some manipulation or strategic, some strategizing behind all this, that the accused is trying to, if, if the accused is, does nothing, you see behind that some kind of manipulation or strategizing. Do you not see any difference between the benefits of an acquittal versus the benefits of a state of proceedings? Perhaps the accused was withholding the argument about delay because the accused would have preferred to be acquitted. Well, it's, that's legit. It is fine if you prefer an acquittal to a stay. Uh, that is legitimate. But what we are saying is that a constitutional right is not an argument. It's not a card that you keep up your sleeve just in case. It's not something that should be used as a weapon or a strategy. It's not something you pull out of your hat when you don't like the result you got. Uh, constitutional rights are more important than strategic decisions. And in our opinion, the Court of Appeals decision and the principles that flow from it, and that's in our factum, but in the, in the decision rather, in paragraph 69 and 70, the Court of Appeal is basically saying uh, it's in your interest to act diligently and if the Crown is considering appealing an acquittal, what, we're, what we see is that the Court of Appeal is condoning this use of constitutional arguments uh, to try to force the Crown's hand, to force the Crown to re-examine whether it's even worth appealing an acquittal. So, it's our view that it, it shouldn't all be a choice that's left up to the accused whether or not to raise the infringement of a right. And I'd like to come down to the, uh, finish up with the factors, the, the length of inaction, the length of the delay, these are things that should be looked at. How the first trial unfolded, whether the Crown was responsible for the delay, and, or was the accused himself responsible for the day, and the impact on judicial resources, on court resources, because 10 days were set aside for trial in Montreal. Those dates were lost. They may have been lost. Maybe they were, we, they couldn't be reassigned once a stay was ordered in this case. And finally, there's the interest of justice as the best interest of justice. What's the impact if uh, our argument were not to be accepted? How would this affect the public confidence in the administration of justice? Would this be condoning excessive delay? Or should the accused have been allowed to behave as he did in this case? So what, what are the repercussions in terms of the reputation of the administration of justice? So in our opinion, the Court of Appeal erred in preventing this uh, argument from being successful. And if you look at the conduct of the accused, you can certainly infer that he did not feel that his rights had been violated. He accepted the lengthy delays and only those delays attributable to the second trial should have been 
taken into account. And unless you have any other questions, I will pass the floor to my colleague, Mr. Abran. Chief Justice, Justices, good morning. I'm going to explain the appellant's position on how we see Jordan applying when a retrial is ordered and when there was no request or motion made during the original trial. So in our opinion, the question is whether the delays for the current trial are reasonable. And if so, and the accused argues that previous delays or overall cumulative delays, it's our position that this analysis cannot be done under Jordan when the issue wasn't raised at the first trial. Our starting point is the Court of Appeals ordering of a retrial. It's our position that the, you reset the clock at that point uh, as of the date of the order of a new trial. So that would be the classic Jordan approach. And the ceilings of 18 and 30 months should then apply like this court's decision in KJM, we also agree, as in KJM, that it's preferable to have consistent, uniform ceilings. Now, obviously, the circumstances of trials vary greatly. In some cases, there are changes in lawyers, changes in strategies, there are admissions, or agreed statements of fact, or witnesses are heard or aren't heard as a result of those decisions. Other trials are much more straightforward. So in some cases, the ceilings are, are, are too low because some trials are very complicated. They might take much longer. And so it can be very hard to fit some trials within the ceilings. And the current framework created by this court in 2016 is sufficiently flexible that adjustments can be made. And coming back to the Chief Justice's question, the approach, like in KJM, has to be flexible. And the judge examining the delays in a second trial has to keep in mind that this is a, this is a priority uh, expedited proceedings, a second trial has to be given priority in scheduling. And in addition, as part of the disability, the delays of the first trial may be considered whether it, whether the first trial ended within the ceiling, at the ceiling, or even went beyond the ceiling. That can be a circumstance that could be taken into account when an accused argues that the delay was excessive at second trial. So that is something that can be taken into account. So if we apply this court's reasoning KGM to the second trial, we can keep the same ceilings but emphasize expediting the this retrial taking into account the fact that it is untrue that you can fix a retrial date as soon as a new trial is ordered. 
we argue that the retrial is not was not longer than it should have been we consider that uh, the respondent was not very proactive and that is relevant if you're under the ceiling so on august 14th 2018 when the case was heard at the court of quebec the defense uh, lawyer and another person were on vacation uh, despite the fact that the delay was apparently considered excessive they did not raise that and then they returned to court and fixed the date for 2019 N at no point was there any complaint about these dates it was on December 28 2018 that a motion was presented six months after the beginning of the second trial and two and a half months after the hearing for fixing the retrial dates. A few days later, the Court of Quebec coordination team, because that is what happened, the system reacted to what was happening. We were in a situation that had been going on for 11 months with an 18 month ceiling, but the first dates that were offered were, were, did not work. And so a new date was chosen a month later. So we consider that if you look at the delays in the retrial, it was not clearly longer than it should have been. And we also believe that the flexibility in KGM allows us to apply the framework that you created in 2016. It allows us to understand the situation. And I just want to make a, a subsidiary point. If this court does decide to impose ceilings that are lower than the Jordan ceilings, we would disagree with that. But if you do decide to do that, we consider that the suggestion of six months in a provincial court and eight months in a superior court are far too low. We rely on Askov and Morin that uh, took into account the institutional delay between when the date is uh, fixed and the trial. But there is a preparation time that is required and you also have to take into account the time for holding a trial that is increasingly long. I don't believe that uh, the framework needs to be altered for a retrial, but I would suggest that the six and eight month proposals by certain parties are far too low. So that is our vision on how Jordan should apply to a retrial. We also argue that Jordan should not apply to a previous trial if there was no 11B motion during that first trial. KGK is clear. Not all delays are uh, re relevant to Jordan. It is a prospective framework and the objective is to eliminate huge delays and complacency when it comes to those delays.
And so the framework should only apply to the trial that is occurring. The retrospective analysis in Morin was set aside. Using Jordan to look at past delays that were never objected to through a motion means that you're applying Jordan retrospectively. And that, we argue, is not how the framework should be applied Ball. to ensure that all parties uh, collaborate and justice is uh, served promptly. Question. So if you reset the clock at the retrial, if a motion is presented in the retrial, you look at uh, how you should analyze things, whether the retrial was, pr was prioritized or expedited. How? Can a judge look at past delays without necessarily applying the Jordan framework? And what should, uh, should help a judge uh, analyze those issues? Answer. First of all, you, yes, a judge can look at delays to see if the retrial was clearly longer than it should have been. But having said that, it is not the delays in the first trial that are determinative here. But they could contribute to the analysis of delays in the retrial. If the accused complains about past delays, then in that case we see two possibilities that would allow us to avoid eliminating the benefits that the Jordan framework has brought to the judicial system. First of all is we can look at the uh, slightly more flexible test in KGK to determine if the delays were clearly longer than they should have been. So we're talking about a, an approach that's more qualitative than quantitative. We're not looking at exceptional circumstances. We are looking at just a moment. We're looking at what, what the uh, crime is, what the situation is, what the accused uh, did or did not do at the first trial. And then if you look at all of those delays as a whole, knowing that the accused did not try to defend uh, their right under 11b despite the protections, in those circumstances, uh, question, excuse me, Essentially, what you're saying is that for the second review, you would be using the test in Morin, which was uh, weighting different uh, criteria, the severity of the crime, the nature of the delay. There's a little more flexibility, but it was also a little less predictable, and that is uh, why Jordan came about. Answer. This proposal would only apply 
in cases where, despite Jordan, an accused did not raise the delays that occurred in their first trial, even if the ceiling was exceeded, and if the motion concerning the retrial is rejected. So we're talking about something, an approach that would be used very rarely. That's the first thing. And the second thing, it's almost inevitable that it will be retrospective if a, an accused complains about delays that are completely past. The objective of Jordan was perspective. It was to make sure that the Crown would make sure that there were no excessive delays. Question, yes, it also encouraged the defense to avoid doing the same thing. So uh, playing games, complacency, that was over. So it applied to both parties. I imagine if uh, there's anything that you can uh, present to the court, you have to do it as quickly as possible. Answer, absolutely. It invited all parties to act quickly so that things moved quickly. And that leads me to my second suggestion. I know that uh, some attorney generals uh, disagree with us, but we believe that it would work very well to look at past delays when uh, they were not raised by accused persons. We could look at uh, Section 7, but pursuant to 11B. So what do I mean by that? 11B is a specific manifestation of the rights that are guaranteed by Section 7 of the Charter. So the issue here would not be to come back to the past and try to understand the various reasons why a delay occurred. Sometimes uh, the, ju the judges are not the same as in the first trials. The lawyers are not the same. Sometimes the cases themselves are not very clear themselves. So it, this begs the question. Is holding a retrial because of the first trial violating the integrity of the system for the residual category? Does it affect the fairness of the trial either because the accused can't present a full answer in defense or for another reason? And so it would be up to the accused to fill this burden because they did not defend their rights under Jordan. So we're not suggesting that we shouldn't protect an accused under 11b. What we're saying is that Jordan is prospective. If we use it retroactively to look at the past and to come back to what uh, Justice Kazara said, we'll be creating uh, cases that are dead in the water from the outset. So what can the Crown, what can the judge do? Can we force an accused to present a waiver? I don't believe so. The framework of a waiver 
cannot hang on all of this. It's up to the accused to defend their right if they feel like their right their rights are violated. And the principles in uh, section 7 of the charter and this is in our in our uh, arguments will allow the retrial judge to decide if the circumstances in the retrial are affecting the integrity of the justice system or affecting the capacity of the accused to have a fair trial question to come back to your second option if the first option invites a complexity that the that Jordan was trying to eliminate the second solution that you've offered give it has a lot of potential for a challenge that could occur right in the middle of a trial are you sure that you want to invite that into the process wouldn't it be better to work within the framework one of the advantages to the Jordan framework according to your friends from the other provinces is that it simplified things in a retrial you proceed according to priority to fix the retrial date you act quickly to hold the trial there can be a little flexibility but why open up this second branch? Mais c'est pas dans le lorsqu'on procède. Well, when there's a Jordan hearing at a second trial, when there's been no judicial adjudication of the delays at the first trial. We're talking about a lot of evidence in the case at bar, we weren't challenging how the delays were described. There were some 30 pages just describing the, the delays. And on retrial, you're not before the same judge. So all that evidence has to be reintroduced. It has to be done and it's a big job. And my colleague, uh, Mr. Tremblay and I, what we're arguing is that it's a, it's a kind of an alternative we're offering. Either there has to be a finding of waiver and you don't have to go through the whole exercise or the judge takes everything into account and it's an analysis that is at least something that's somewhat familiar and it's not that complex if you compare it to the alternative, which would be a retrospective Jordan analysis of the whole, both proceedings. So these are just proposals that we're making, solutions that we're suggesting to this court, because in our view, we cannot accept an accused who didn't raise any Jordan argument at the first trial and then sat on that argument through the appeal and only on retrial, six months into the retrial, after everything was in motion, it, then he stands up and makes the argument and everything falls by the wayside. Everything becomes moot. 
and ever since Collins in 87, a decision of this court, uh, it's been established that if you have a constitutional right, you have to raise it, you have to defend it. And there has to be a way of analyzing delays that are only raised on retrial. And so that's why we're proposing a solution along the lines of KGK or an analysis under Section 7 instead of 11B. If this court doesn't agree with us, uh, this court can find another solution. Those are just the two feasible solutions that we came up with and that would be uh, reasonable to manage uh, and uh, we think it would be a better alternative to Jordan. I see I have only a few seconds left. I'd just like to say a few words about one of the grounds raised by the respondent with respect to KGK. The respondent says that uh, this retrial was, would have been far longer than it should have been. We don't agree with that submission. And I'll just make a few points. First of all, the judge uh, took the uh, took the the trial judge in the first trial uh, took the decision into deliberation before Jordan had been issued. Resources in Quebec at that time were quite limited. A few months later, the Quebec government appointed a whole bunch uh, more judges, twenty more judges uh, at the uh, court of Quebec. So the resources were not that plentiful. And finally, uh, we would argue that the judge, that the, the, the deliberations took about seven months because the judge fell ill before judgment was issued. And in our view, nine months, in KGK, nine months was not held to be unreasonable. So in our case, seven months was even less lengthy so if you have no other questions, I would uh, wrap up by uh, asking that you uphold our appeal. Uh, just one technical question, Mr. Abran. You're not just asking us to uphold this appeal in your relief sought. You're asking that we quash the Court of Appeals decisions and, and quash the stay of, a pre of proceedings. But you also ask for the matter to be referred to the Court of Quebec for the trial to be continued, the retrial. So you're asking for the retrial to be continued. Well, since we were only in the preliminary stages of the retrial, we don't think it's necessary to order a new trial. We could just pick up from where we left off with the retrial, uh, with the clarification of this court respecting Jordan. But what about the accumulated delays? That's why I'm asking the question. What's the effect on the uh, accumulated delays? Could you make that a bit more clear, Justice Kesserer? What do you mean exactly? Well, you say that the delay, the, the counter starts as soon as the retrial is ordered. That's when the clock starts at zero. So, Would you would you want the counter restarted as as of when this court decides? Well, that is what we asked for, and we'd give it priority treatment. 
So ever since Justice Hua's stay of, uh, stay of proceedings, the respondent was no longer an accused. So the judge should take into account the various periods of time and the various proceedings and sub-proceedings and motions and what have you, but just to simplify things. So just to follow up on my colleague's question, if the procedures were to continue, it wouldn't be Justice Hua, it would be a different judge. Yes, right, we should have probably said before an, a different judge. Thank you very much. Tracy Kozlowski. Good morning, Justices and Chief Justice. Uh, we're asking that a bright line rule be adopted by this Honourable Court, and that rule should bar pursuit of a Section 11B application with respect to trial delay in our submission once that trial, as it was defined in KGK, has reached its end. And that is by the end of the evidence and argument uh, on the trial proper. In Jordan and in Cody, this court made clear that all criminal justice system participants are obliged to be proactive in preventing delay and to make responsible use of justice system resources. Accordingly, it's submitted that delay in raising a claim, which can paradoxically wind up unnecessarily consuming such resources, ought not be permitted. Firstly, to allow otherwise is to incentivize accused persons to hold back a claim, uh, though it might have merit, only to raise it in the event of a conviction or as in the instant case where an acquittal has been overturned and a new trial ordered. And this is problematic because where the delay issue is not raised at the time it crystallizes, which is generally when the trial date is set and the anticipated end of trial is known, uh, the Crown and the administration of justice are now in no position to respond and try and mitigate the issue. And so while it's accepted that the Crown is at all times obligated to avoid delay, uh, and that obligation is not solely triggered upon the application being brought, uh, it should be kept in mind that it's often the case that the Crown and the accused will disagree about whether the Crown has failed in that obligation. And so the Crown may well be of the view that much of the delay to that point is attributable, for example, to a discrete exceptional circumstance or to some defense caused delay or waiver, for example. So that the matter is, re so that the fact that the matter has reached the Jordan date is not necessarily indicative that the Crown has failed in its obligation to move the matter forward and now should be taking further steps uh, in the absence of any complaint in that regard. Furthermore, witnesses and complainants will have been put uh, through a trial. The judge will deliberate and upon conviction, a sentencing hearing must take place, all of which could have been avoided right from the outset uh, where the claim had some merit and was raised in a timely way. It also does not serve an accused to hold back a claim as a sort of plan B. And the reason for that is that she may never get another opportunity to raise it. Uh, leave to appeal may be denied or she may not be permitted to raise it post-trial. There may be no second trial at all. 
And so there should be an incentive to raise it as soon as it is possible to do so for that reason, lest the claim be lost. Should it not be possible for an accused person to say, I want a disposition on the merits, I, I think I should be acquitted, and judge, I'm making my stay application, in other words, to ride both horses at the same time, but both within the first trial. Justice Rowe, we agree with that uh, completely. Uh, it may well be that there's a presumption, at least in Ontario, of 60 days uh, to bring the application in advance of trial. Having said that, that need not occur on the direction of the trial judge. And it can be also kept in mind that in other instances, it may not have been possible to bring the claim prior to the start of trial. Um, for example, trials can sometimes be set as marked to occur with or without counsel and the time to raise the claim beforehand is passed uh, before counsel is retained and, and able to uh, review that record. Delays in receiving transcripts can occur as a practical matter. And in other instances, the Section 11B issue only crystallizes when additional trial dates have to be added midway through the trial uh, because it went over long, notwithstanding best efforts of the parties. And in these instances, so long as the application is brought and heard before the end of trial, as KGK defines it, uh, there's nothing preventing the trial judge from then deliberating on both the motion and the trial evidence, and then delivering both a verdict and then a ruling. And this is preferable then in my submission because the accused now has both decisions and can pursue an appeal with respect to either or both. And because the application will have been determined by the judge who was there to observe the conduct of the trial and is therefore best positioned to decide the application. And so it's not so that an accused must necessarily make a stark choice between pursuing an acquittal on the one hand and raising the claim for delay on the other. Can I just ask you something? I just want to make sure that I'm understanding the implication of your submission at paragraph 20. When you say where the steps needed on a retrial are truncated, for example, where little more than a trial itself is required, defense has a powerful argument that the delay below the ceiling is nonetheless unreasonable. So are you effectively saying that even though there's a bright line drawn after the first trial is over, we can still look retrospectively over that bright line back to the first trial and say, well, look, this and that occurred at the first trial, and, and that should have accelerated matters. It's open for the defense to say that should have accelerated matters at the second trial. Um, yes, insofar uh, as the fact of the matter uh, being a retrial can be a, a, a relevant consideration on whether or not the matter took markedly longer than it ought to have. And what should not inform that consideration is the length of the delay on trial one per se. But an accused, for example, has a powerful argument to make that where nothing's changed uh, with respect to the content and the tenor of trial number two, there's no new lawyers, there's not a new uh, set of uh, pretrial applications, for example, then there should be uh, room there to make the argument that uh, the trial ought to have occurred uh, sooner uh, because there was no uh, disclosure issue on the front end. There was no need for further judicial pretrials and right. so forth. Okay. Yeah. Thank you very so much. To that, to that extent, it's relevant. I'm sorry, your time is up. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Ms. Uh, Banturakis. 
Chief Justice, uh, Justices, uh, with the time I have today, what I hope to do is to address a question posed by Justice Koti uh, earlier with regard to when Section 11B pretrial delay applications ought to be brought. Uh, and that will be my focus, subject to any questions. And British Columbia's answer to that is that, generally speaking, these applications should be brought as a pretrial application in the original proceedings. Now, I acknowledge, and British Columbia acknowledges, the uh, comments made by my friend for Ontario with regard to circumstances which may arise in the trial process which prevent the bringing of these applications pretrial necessarily. For example, in the situation where there's a continuation, but generally speaking, these applications should be brought before trial. And the reason that we say that, and I will expand on it, is that in our view, such an approach gives full effect to the process-related concerns identified in Jordan, specifically the procedural impediments uh, that can exist to a speedy trial. It also gives effect to the animating spirit uh, of Jordan in terms of incentivizing the efficient use uh, of court resources uh, and moving matters along. The other point I would make, and this relates also to my answer to Justice Kulti's question, is that the question of when or if first trial delay can be challenged on retrial and when Section 11B applications can be brought um, to be decided in this case may well have impact beyond the retrial context. And so uh, I think here, for example, of Section 11B applications that are brought when trial is very imminent, when trial is already underway, or when trial is concluded, including when a finding of guilt has been made. Uh, and British Columbia would urge and encourage this court to take those broader impacts into account uh, when deciding this case. Should we be bringing in a rule, excuse me, should we be bringing in a rule like we do in other situations uh, for example, where an abusive process application is brought early or there's some evidence that's been lost. And I believe it was Justice Sapinka in one of the cases or several that said, unless it's the clearest of cases before the trial starts, we should let the trial continue, get the thing done, so that at least we have a record, a ruling, and we, can, we don't have to start all over again if, in fact, the 11B application brought before the trial even starts uh, uh, should not have been granted. Well, I think the answer to that, Justice Moldaver, in my submission would lie in Jordan's animating precepts. That is, Jordan now should provide us the means first to mitigate delay, but if that mitigation is not possible to determine that in advance of trial, and I acknowledge that there are circumstances where that won't occur. But the reality is, is that Jordan aims, my understanding, to uh, address the situation and avoid the situation where delay applications themselves compound delay. And in my submission, there's a real concern here with regard to the impact of late brought trial delay applications, uh, not only with respect to retrials and the expenditure of resources in that context, but also, for example, applications that crystallized earlier 
but that are brought only when trial is imminent or already underway. We have situations where trial dates that have been set months in advance are scuttled, uh, continuation dates are required where they otherwise might not be, or as in this case, significant and resource intensive steps are taken that may ultimately prove academic. Uh, we've cited several examples of cases uh, in our factum at paragraphs 23 and 25 where trial courts grappled with how to deal with uh, a situation where, for example, a jury trial is about to start in a week. Uh, and uh, what do we do now that we have an 11B application? Do we proceed with the trial? Do we not? Uh, what do we do? So these are significant expenditures of resources and they tax the system and ultimately affect its efficiency. I would also add to that that they have an impact on the broader spectrum of interest that Section 11B protects. So not only with respect to the accused interest in a, in a speedy trial, but also the interests of victims and the public interest in the efficient functioning of our system and I wonder, I wonder though if this is really the case to be looking at that, because that's not this case, right? And, and, and it's... It's not a particularly easy concept to grapple with that you're, that you're speaking of, particularly in light of, of what we said in KGK about Jordan ceilings applying um, until uh, the actual or anticipated end of the evidence and argument. Um, what, what you're saying isn't necessarily completely incompatible with it, but it's not obviously, there's some tension. And um, I mean, if this is a public service announcement that you're making to us, that's one thing and we can keep it in mind. But I, I, I'm really not sure that this is really the case where we are in a position to consider those, because there's so many contingencies floating around. I just want to signal that to you. Chief Justice, may I have leave to respond? Sure, yeah, go ahead. Thank you. Uh, Justice Brown, I appreciate your point. Uh, the only thing that I would say and emphasize, as I said at the outset of my submissions, is that regardless of whether the court chooses to actively engage uh, with these points in the context of deciding this case, uh, the reality is, is that the comments this court's make uh, with regard to um, the timing of 11B applications in the retrial context may very well subsequently be relied on and considered in deciding these other timing issues. And I would encourage the court to consider those broader impacts in deciding this case. Thank you very Thank much. You. Thank you. Mr. Matthew uh, Greener. Good morning, Chief Justice, uh, Justices. Um, Alberta has uh, intervened only on the second question posed by the appellant. That's the um, issue of, of how to uh, assess delay for a retrial following appeal. Uh, it's our position that the correct framework for that analysis was set out by the Alberta Court of Appeal in uh, the JEV decision uh, and applied by that court in uh, JAL and TWS. There's two points that, uh, time permitting, I'd like to emphasize this morning. Um, the first is that the Emphasis in the JEV analysis is on the retrial, the time to complete the retrial, um, and would not look um, except as a factor in that analysis to the time to complete the first trial. And it, it's my submission that that's the appropriate approach to take. It's consistent with, as my friends have uh, already discussed, the obligations on all parties to make efficient use of judicial resources. Um, that would uh, in my submission, uh, include a presumptive expectation that where there's concern about delay, that concern would be raised at the earliest uh, reasonable opportunity. Um, I, I would highlight also the concern uh, that Alberta has where delay is asserted for the first time only after the disposition of an appeal. 
Um, that obviously the concerns about the waste of judicial resources are heightened in that case where uh, potentially uh, the entire appellate proceedings are rendered moot by the existence of delay which would have warranted a stay had it been raised in a timely manner. Um, and second, that what's contemplated where that delay is raised for the first time after appeal is essentially a litigation by installment uh, of sort of arguing an appeal on one set of grounds. And if those are unsuccessful, uh, then raising a new issue, that being the original delay uh, in the trial court and potentially having to relitigate that uh, on appeal a second, a second round. Mr. Um, Mr. Grenier, uh, can I, I take all these points, and, and they're well made in your factum. I, I have one specific question about JEV, and it's the one that's been bandied about in the first portion of this hearing. It has to do with, at paragraph 43, the, the, the last factor, E, uh, take, that are to be taken into account for the assessment of the delay in the second trial. And that is, at least some consideration should be given to how long it took to prepare for and complete the first trial together with the amount it took to prepare for and complete the retrial. Now, this is stated in JEV after it's been mentioned already that the trial is going to be set on a priority basis, that it's normally going to be a shorter trial, it's going to be dealt with, uh, it's, the expectation is that it'll be dealt with uh, with, with due dispatch. I'm wondering what exactly, what room is there for that consideration? And in a case, without asking you to comment on the facts here, but in a case where in the first trial, the delay was above the presumptive limit, how does that consideration get factored in? And I ask it because the Court of Appeal in Alberta makes this comment after having cited Justice Pachaco in a case called Fitz, where he, is, he implores courts to be open to the suffering of an accused through the, a delay that it would otherwise be unrecognized. I, I suppose to an extent it's my position that um, some of those factors in the Court of Appeals analysis are, are overlapping to some extent. And so uh, in consideration of this sort of last look, uh, you might call it at global delay, um, I would suggest it's important to look. And one of the examples the Court of Appeal gives in JEV is that where the first trial has taken, you know, near the ceiling or, or perhaps in excess of it, um, that the, um, in that sense, the suffering, the anxiety that the accused has been subjected to, um, from the outstanding charges, which of course is the fundamental uh, animating purpose of Section 11B is protection against that. Um, <clears throat> it's appropriate to consider the retrial delay in that context. And so a longer delay to the first trial, even if it was at the time reasonable, uh, may impose obligations uh, where a matter comes back to retrial, um, that that second trial be completed in an even shorter time, but that assessment in my submission would also have to take account of um, all the circumstances relating to the second trial, so including issues like changes of strategy, uh, changes in the evidence, changes in the issues. Thank you very much. Thank you. The court will take its morning break. We will return at 11.15.
That cool. The court. Please be seated, Mr. Gramayo. Chief Justice, Justices, hello. I am not here to reinvent the wheel. I think what you created in 2016 is very good and will serve us even on the terrain of multiple trials. This uh, case is important not only for JF, but for the following reason. If you decide that under Jordan, uh, an accused cannot uh, complain about uh, delays in previous trials, it will have uh, consequences. The Crown could decide to hold a new trial to reset the clock, for example. Should an accused make an application every time just to ensure that there's no implicit waiver? What I'd like to do this morning is uh, give you a bit of uh, contextual information, share my position, and then before following my plan, I'd like to respond to some of the arguments put forward by the Attorney Generals because it's the, the only opportunity I will have to do so. I'd also like to uh, come back to an argument uh, presented by the Crown and then I will move to my plan. So after a first trial that lasted six years, including the deliberation, Mr. GF was acquitted. This is not a major trial. It was a standard uh, case uh, that is heard in any uh, court across the country and uh, throughout the uh, pleadings and the deliberation uh, Morin applied. After the acquittal the appeal court ordered a new trial not because of the behavior of Mr. JF but because of an error committed by the trial judge. This had nothing to do with Mr. GF but 16 months after his acquittal Mr. JF continued to benefit from the uh, presumption of innocence and I put that uh, in uh, air quotes. Why? Because Mr. J.F. found himself in a in uh, legal proceedings that seemed uh, to last forever. Mr. J.F. found himself overwhelmed and finally decided to apply for a stay of proceedings and obtained it. The judge felt that the first proceedings were tainted by this complacency combated by Jordan, but did not believe that the accused was at fault. So she and I agree with the fact that J, Mr. J.F. is only responsible for a single day of delay for both trials. But according to the law, Mr. J.F., since he only made his application during the second trial, not the first trial, under Jordan, this uh, violation, the 62-month uh, delay should not be considered. I disagree with this crown, the Crown's premise. 
Jordan should apply to the previous trial. We don't have to to set Jordan aside, whether it be for one or two or three trials. Question, so what's the point of ordering a new trial or a retrial if the delays uh, have been expired? Then there's no point in holding a retrial, as uh, my colleague uh, Justice Cesare was saying, was saying. Answer, I disagree with that. In fact, I think one solution would be to not allow accused to persons to combine the delays in two trials. If the Crown did its job right in the first trial, then they shouldn't uh, worry that this would occur, this is a situation that would occur. When uh, the Crown decides to appeal, then it is responsible for those additional delays. When a new trial is ordered, the Crown makes a choice whether to prosecute or not. If uh, the Crown had decided not to proceed with a new prosecution, given the delays, would that be considered a collateral attack? Certainly not. The Crown has admitted that there were si there's a delay of 62 months. So ask yourself the following question. Are resources being wasted here? And is it by the Crown or by a JF? Question. Mr. Tremblay this morning said that the application under 11B should have been uh, presented during the appeal or immediately after a new trial was ordered instead of waiting for six months after the, the retrial is ordered. What do you answer to that? Answer. I think there are two parts to your question. First of all, uh, the appeal and then when to uh, make this application. So for, when it comes to the appeal, the prejudice can be subjective. During a hearing, for example, an accused might uh, prefer to choose to fight for acquittal. For example, if there's a a case of domestic violence and there's a parallel case in a family court that person might obtain an acquittal and then when the crown appeals that uh, that individual is uh, has to uh, continue the process and will fight to maintain that acquittal but when there's a retrial and the person realizes that everything must be started with a blank slate including uh, lawyers fees it's very difficult they hit a wall question they hit a wall let's be realistic here didn't the accused uh, hit the wall after six years so the accused uh, was okay with the delay after six years but when a new trial was ordered then they'd had enough why wait if uh, if uh, he believed that the delay was unreasonable. He decided to wait. He decided to take a chance. And then the Court of Appeal, at that point, ordered a new trial. So uh, he decided that he'd had enough after all. Answer. There may be cases where the evidence leads to that conclusion, but that is not the case here. We don't know why the respondent wanted 
to opt for an acquittal rather than a stay of proceedings. All we know is that uh, he made his application, he presented a detailed affidavit, and it was up to the Crown to establish this waiver. The Crown could have asked questions of uh, the respondent, and so they, the Crown accepted Mr. J.F.'s silence. So this is not a case where we can infer any kind of intention whatsoever question, but I would have thought that if Mr. J.F. was so worried about that delay, he would not have waited so long to make his application for a stay. Answer. Coming back to what I was saying earlier, whether you're dealing with uh, accused person A who decides to apply for a stay in the first proceedings or accused person B who decides to do it in the second trial, both people do so at a time when they benefit from the presumption of innocence and they have been suffering from the prejudice since the beginning of the moment when charges were brought against them. And so, as I said earlier, if from the moment you decide not to add the delays and compare it to a single Jordan ceiling, if the Crown did its job right in the first trial, then at that point it doesn't have to worry that the situation will arise in the second trial. Question. This is an important point that you're raising. You talk about duty and obligation, responsibility. If you look at Jordan, in Jordan we say every party has a responsibility here. The era of complacency is over. The Crown must make decisions. The defense also must make decisions. And if you look at that context and the choices, the decisions that were made by the Crown, I agree, they have decisions that they must uh, make. They have to do things the right way. But the defense also has obligations. The obligation to do things right. The era of playing games is over. That's what we said in Jordan. Answer. You make a good point, Chief Justice, but in the present case, we cannot ask Mr. GF to divine the future. When uh, the pleadings uh, came to an end, Jordan did not exist yet. And so, question. The verdict had not uh, been reached. Jordan occurred between the first trial and the appeal. Answer. Yes, of course, I agree. But when Jordan was handed down, the moment between the first case and the appeal. So we can't, what I'm saying is we can't blame the accused in this case, saying that in the second trial he waived his right. It's not a clear and unequivocal waiver. It is a waiver that only stems from the fact that a trial judge committed an error at law and the Court of Appeal decided that an error had occurred and ordered a new trial. And so the fact that an appeal a judge decided that an error had occurred is not uh, evidence of, a, of an informed uh, waiver. Question. The way you're presenting your friend's position, the Crown's position, is not completely accurate. It's true that he talks about the accused's inaction, but he's not 
and mentions that uh, the clock should be reset, but is not asking for a blank slate. He's saying that uh, the consideration, that the delay in the first trial should be considered. What the Crown is arguing is that the delay associated with the first trial should not burden the Jordan analysis from the moment the Court of Appeal orders makes their order, or for the moment the accused is charged once again. So if you look at the addition of delays that can lead to procedures, proceedings that are dead on arrival, shouldn't there be a fair way of looking at the obligations of both parties when it comes to uh, delays related to the second trial? Answer. Justice, I think that if the delays are under a ceiling, if you decide that there is a ceiling, then we should take into account delays from the beginning of the, of the, the case from the viewpoint of prejudice. I believe that uh, a waiver must be clear and unequivocal and informed, and it's always up to the Crown to prove that. And if they cannot prove that, then uh, an accused is protected under 11b. And if the accused raises uh, a claim in the second trial, that's their prerogative. It reminds me of uh, the Anderson decision. It says uh, that uh, the discretionary power to prosecute does not oblige a prosecutor who has not uh, respected their constitutional obligations. So if the Crown decides to restart proceedings at the retrial, the Crown can decide not to do so, but a violation can come and haunt the Crown. That's how I read uh, the Anderson decision at paragraph 45. And so if uh, there was a violation of rights in the first trial, if you look at paragraph 37 of JEV, the Alberta Court of Appeal says, and this is in tab 10 of my book, You must reset the clock unless the first trial delays were unreasonable. Question. Mr. Gamajou, this is the problem. There was no violation. You say there was a violation, but there was no actual infringement of rights in the first trial because you did not act. So that's the issue here. The attorneys general are trying to find a way to take into account the delays in the first trial. But if I understand your argument, you are simply saying that after 62 months, it's game over. Is that really your position? Answer. My position concerning the first trial, of course, I wasn't the one who was there, but I can imagine that Mr. J.F.'s lawyers, it was during the Morin era, and uh, cases uh, unfolded over time, no matter how long uh, the delays were. 
But my position, Justice, is that if during the retrial there's a claim that has to do with delays in the first trial, and maybe I can answer the arguments put forward by the Attorneys General, you have to continue to trust the trial judge. The trial judge has huge power under Cody the trial judge can uh, can throw out any emotion that they consider a frivolous a motion that is not frivolous under Jordan is called a legitimate uh, defense mechanism and so if we adopt something like the bright line rule then we're stopping judges from dealing with motions that could be legitimate but under Cody and this brings me back to Justice Kazara's questions. They can say, the judge can say, you are bringing me to previous delays that are under the ceiling. Show me the evidence that you're going to present here because your motion is going to go up in flames. It's the same thing with a lawyer's lack of, of competence. That's a very complex issue you have to have an affidavit, uh, witnesses, and at the end of the day, the judge or the court that has to decide on that must assess the first trial delays because they have to determine if a prejudice occurred or not. So going to Ottawa from Montreal, sure, you can go via Vancouver, but that's not the quickest path. The quickest path is going through Cody you give the trial judge the power on a case-by-case -case basis to look at motions and reject them as need be. Motions must always be presented before the first trial. Sometimes there are Jordan motions that can be frivolous, some that can be presented after the beginning of a trial that can be extremely serious. So trust the trial judge so, Justice Kazara, to answer your question, when the delay goes beyond the ceiling, especially here, this is a fully transitional case. So, Justice Roy analyzed the motion, and if she had found that the delay was attributable to JF, the respondent, then the result might have been quite different from what it was. But 62 agreed on months of delay, a simple trial, and in Morin, you indicated that no party can rely on its own delays to support its position. But that's precisely what the Crown is doing here. The 62 months of net delay attributable to the Crown is so long that uh, JF shouldn't be able to use it to his advantage. So the Crown is trying to rely on its own delay in support of its own argument. They're saying the delay was so long that JF should not be allowed to rely on it. And yet it was the Crown's responsibility to conduct the trial within a reasonable time. Counsel, I just want to make sure I understand correctly what you're saying. So when a retrial is ordered... 
and a motion for a stay of proceedings based on delays in the original trial. Am I to understand what you're saying to be that, yes, you can look at those previous delays, and they were very long in this case, but let's suppose that the delays in the first trial were, th first trial were 30 months and 15 days, 30 and a half months. Is it your view that that should be treated the same way as a 62-month delay? How are we supposed to deal with that? Are we supposed to use a Jordan ceiling or something more flexible? Justice, I am trying, when it comes to Jordan, to be a purist, if you will. The respondent is protected by 11b throughout, but Jordan is the case that's, that applies, and they say once the delays, then if the net delay exceeds the ceiling, well, the Crown has to justify that situation. But in this case, you're saying if after deductions you're below the ceiling, then the tardy motion for a stay, that could weigh heavily. Because if the accused didn't take the necessary steps to expedite the proceedings, that might be relevant. That's when your question might be a good one. But in this case, whether the matter was dealt with at the original trial or on retrial, it makes no difference. Well, that's where the shoe pinches because if a trial takes 20 months, so you're under the Jordan ceiling, then there's a, an appeal, then the retrial is ordered, and say the second, the retrial takes 11 months. According to your argument, we should add up all the delays from the first trial and the retrial, even though both were within the ceilings, both reasonable. No, absolutely not, Chief Justice. What I am saying is that when you get to the retrial, if the, the, the clock starts over at zero, but before you even get to that question, you should ask whether the delays in the first trial were reasonable or not. If the delays in the first trial were reasonable, well, then you look at the retrial uh, under a completely separate analysis. It's by in JEV, the delays of the first trial were not reasonable. And uh, in that case, there was a, there was a, a limitless ceiling. But my point is that the delays of the first trial should be taken into account on retrial if they were reasonable. Uh, the, and whether there's a, a, a ceiling or not for this, for the, 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 it should still be decided whether the original delays were excessive or not. But if the second trial, if the retrial goes beyond when the first trial was reasonable, if the second trial was, is unreasonable, that leads to a stay of proceeding. If it's under the ceiling, then you have to also look back to the prejudice caused by the first trial. That's my answer. Did I understand correctly, counsel? 
that you concede that the clock starts over at zero. Did I understand you correctly? Yes, I did, but you have to understand what I'm saying. It's no different from what the, court of, the Quebec Court of Appeal said in the impugned decision. And it's no different from what the Court of Appeal in Alberta said in JEV, paragraph 37. So first you look at the delays of the original trial. It's a two-pronged approach, as the Court of Appeal suggested. If the original trial was reasonable, then the analysis stops there. But if the delays of the, of the previous trial were not unreasonable, well then the Court of Appeal decided in the case at bar that the clock would start over again, the counter would yeah, start over again at zero. But that approach, yes, Justice? I, I think I understood what you're saying, but conceptually, if you're admitting that the clock starts at zero again, then the question is why? Why does the clock start over at zero? Is it because the, the accused is once again charged with an offense once the retrial is ordered? That would make sense of the Court of Appeal decision so the, the retrial has to be the focus of the analysis. That's the only way that this all makes sense. With a counter that starts at zero. So I'm trying to understand because it seems like you want your cake and you want to eat it too. Well, perhaps, I apologize if it was confusing what I said, but first, I always argued at trial and on appeal that Collins was the case that applied a decision of this court. It came along after Patvin, and your court decided that at on retrial, you could raise previous delays from the original trial. And I just want to be crystal clear here, Justice, the issue of starting the clock over is because of the Jordan ceilings. It's a technical question in my view because obviously if an accused could add the delays from two separate trials, for example 25 plus 6 and then raise their hand and say we're, we're over the 30-month Jordan ceiling, that would take the court's discretion, discretion away, their discretion to continue a matter when the Court of Appeal ordered a retrial. But look, on that matter, on that question, I think that the Collins decision did make it possible to look back to what happened at the original trial. And uh, if anything has to start over at zero, it's the ceilings. In that one circumstance I talked about, if you add 25 and 6 or 27 and 4, then you're up to 31 months, and then the accused could take advantage of the Jordan ceilings, and that's what shouldn't be allowed. But I think Collins is still good law. When you're not in that situation, the respondent has been under, has been charged with an offense all throughout and in my opinion, your court has never ruled that the counter starts over again at zero, that you reset the clock. 
so if the if the clock were to be reset they then they would have rejected the appeal so there are ceilings nowadays but constitutional law i listened to my friends earlier saying that the trial judge is not in as good a position uh, the, on retrial as at trial to judge the delays but look cons the constitutional law is at the very root of jordan it's it's the the rule is not that you be judged within a reasonable time by the first judge it's to be judged within a real uh, tried within a reasonable time so your constitutional right cannot be divided into two just because you had two trials. So the counter can't start over at zero every time you're appearing before a different judge. So the respondent was an accused from the very beginning of the first trial. Perhaps there's a distinction if a person's convicted and then they table their motion after the conviction. But in a case where the person is presumed innocent. Mr. J.F. never lost his presumption of innocence. So he, in, in a case like that, the accused should have the right to raise this uh, constitutional objection at any point. And it's up to the judge to decide whether it's frivolous or not. And if it's not frivolous, then to proceed to hear the motion. So that's what I have to say about that. Now, Justice Cote, earlier you asked me about the delays in the second trial, uh, and I didn't get a chance to answer. I think you have to understand that J.F., the respondent in this case, I took him on as a client in November, and if his conduct is to be criticized, well, he was trying to find a way to save money, to to pay for his lawyer uh, when the motion was introduced. And so on October 15th, I'd indicated that there had been no preliminary in motions yet. And I confirmed with Crown Counsel that I had announced that the motion was coming so as of October 15th, because after appearing before the judge to set dates, my client wanted to know and it's shown in his affidavit that the process was taking too long, that he'd had enough. So I confirmed by email with my friend from the Crown that the motion was coming. And what did the Crown do after October 15th? Until I introduced my motion, they never attempted to do anything to move up the trial dates. So between the time of my motion and the court, of, we're only talking about a two-week period. Uh, but uh, and maybe the crown was on automatic pilot in October, but when the motion for the stay came up, suddenly the next day the crown kicked into gear. So I think my client is not to be faulted in the slightest, even. At the second trial, he had no counsel when it started, and the motion, what triggered the motion, and it come, this comes out of the affidavit, the dates for the second trial, for the retrial, G, JF found those incredible. On October 15th, the dates were set, and that's when everything, 
I, I filed the motion in December before Christmas. It was, uh, I, I think I took uh, due, all due uh, dispatch. And so I think if there's any argument to be made here, that's what I had to say about those points. But as to the question of whether Jordan applies to a previous trial, I think in KGK, you find the example, paragraph 38, it says that Jer Jordan governs uh, this, the, the conduct of a trial and it apl applies to the evidence and submissions. And to respond to the argument that the judge at retrial is not as in as good a position as the trial judge at the original trial to weigh all this evidence, well, that's a, an illogical proposition and it runs counter to the case law because this court has indicated that the best positioned court to assess delays is the is the court where the delays occurred. So if something like that were to be applied in a case like this where the delays of the original trial were unreasonable under Jordan, well, it's important not to allow the Crown to get out from, get away with that. Well, that is why some people would say, counsel, that the original trial judge is in the best position to deal with a Jordan application. That's why the Crown and other interveners have said that something should have been done sooner. The accused should have taken action sooner. And the fact that the accused didn't do anything amounts to a waiver of his right to raise this constitutional ground. Well, with all due respect, uh, Chief Justice, I disagree with that the whole concept of waiving delay is different, in my opinion, from what we have here. The Crown admitted that 62 months was the delay. And if I go by Jordan, once again, it's only relevant when, when if, the, if the net delay is dramatically longer than the Jordan ceilings, even the exceptional transitional measure wouldn't apply. So I'm relying on the, the case law of this court. Ever since Jordan, if the tardy moving of this motion were to work against the accused, then that would run counter to the idea that it's up to the Crown to justify its own delay, not the accused. So when a party agrees to a far off date, obviously, we're, we're, since Jordan, the world has changed. Under Morin, the, the result would have been different, but now under Jordan, it's no longer an, an implicit waiver because now when the Crown asks to set a far off trial date and the defense accepts it when other dates were available, the defense is not solely responsible for that delay. 
it's only when the Crown and the court are ready to go ahead, but the defence isn't, and the defence wants a later date, that's when that works against the defence. But if there's a subsequent motion for a stay, and the delays are under the ceiling, then the Crown could stand up and say, look, the respondent was in no rush for judgment. We had proposed dates in January, February, March and April, and it's true that we asked for April, but the defence agreed. They could have protested. They could have asked for earlier dates. So, but that's not the circumstances that we're in. What happened is there was a first trial. There was an acquittal. In uh, with a delay that went over Jordan, and the accused did nothing. Waited for the appellate court decision did nothing waited for the beginning of the retrial to begin and then acted that's the problem how can you do that given what we know with jordan answer chief justice i i agree that uh, of course the accused did not uh, make an application uh, at the beginning but why did he wait? Is it because he wasn't aware of his rights? All of that is in six, paragraph 62 of Jordan where it says that the accused has to be aware of, uh, of their rights and of what they are waiving. So obviously in this case, the accused did not apply for a stay and waited, but the circumstances behind that don't allow us to Inf to infer what his uh, motivation was. So all we have before us is a long period of silence. And Chief Justice silence is ambiguous. It is not clear and unequivocal. It does not uh, equal a waiver. So yes, I agree. Uh, no motion was, uh, was made. But what we do know, looking at uh, the case, is that at some point, Mr. G.F. decided that enough was enough and made this uh, motion for a stay of proceedings, and it was, uh, it was ordered. Question, what does silence mean if not that Mr. J.F. was not worried about the delay? Answer, the Crown admitted that Mr. J.F. was concerned with the delay. So what does his silence mean? Well, silence is silence. It's ambiguous. It is not enough in and of itself, and I think you said that clearly in Askov, it's not enough alone to question the intentions of uh, the accused and uh, assume that it's, a, that it's a waiver. Question, I'm not talking about a waiver. When you said that you need more to establish that it is a waiving of rights. But you're arguing that silence means nothing. And I'm not so sure that's true. I think silence can indicate that an accused is satisfied with the delay. Answer perhaps in another, in another matter. But here we have a judge that acknowledges there was no waiver. Question, I say unaccused. Answer, that may be. 
But if I look at Askov, and if Askov is still, uh, still applies, my answer is no, silence by itself cannot uh, be enough to, to come to that conclusion of a waiver question. But it's important because it's almost 2022. Jordan was a few years ago, and in Jordan we said that it's not enough to do nothing. Parties must be proactive, whether it be the Crown or the defense. So what you're arguing is that we're going back in time and simply through silence an accused can hinder proceedings but in that case we must not attribute an intention to provoke any delay it's in a way removing any responsibility on for the defense in jordan our message was that this situation this type of situation must never occur again you're saying that there was a, there were months of silence, but that silence means nothing. Don't you think that's curious? Answer. To answer Justice Brown's question, I think there could be cases where a judge presented with a motion, for example, there's a decision where there had been many delays caused by the defense, by the defense's counsel, the accused had not uh, presented all the uh, evidence to the appellate court and so there was a, a delay and then a motion was uh, presented months later the court concluded that if the defense had fulfilled its responsibilities the delay would have been under the jordan ceiling and so in that case the court of appeal treated uh, that uh, case as a case uh, attaining delays under the ceiling and uh, they drew the inference uh, also from the fact that uh, during uh, the trial there was a motion under section 7 but not section 11b so yes you can draw some conclusions from uh, making a late application for a stay if you're under the ceiling or if the exceptional transitional measure is applying applies in that case but in the case of mr. JF when Jordan was handed down deliberations had begun Jordan uh, uh, was handed down in between uh, those events and so we can't uh, fault the accused in this case my I may be mistaken you may decide that I'm wrong question don't give up so easily answer I'm not giving up question I say this uh, in a friendly way but I don't think you really understood the gist of my colleague justices Brown and Wagner's questions we're not taking the firm position that silence equals waiver just look at Askov as you've said we're not taking the position that there is a clear and unequivocal waiver either however what we're saying is that through his inaction the accused seems to have accepted the state of things he's not waiving his rights he may not even be formally waiving the delay 
he can invoke them just as uh, the crown has uh, has admitted the problem is that during the retrial how do you measure that delay how do you measure the delay so that the retrial does not become a fiction and that is uh, what Justice Brown and Chief Justice Wagner are asking you and you're not answering that question from the outset you've been saying he was accused he has rights you have to uh, to calculate the delay so we're asking you to go beyond that and ask you how we should consider this answer since we have the Jordan ceilings we have to look at the first trial delays just as the Court of Appeal did so if those uh, delays are unreasonable then the analysis can stop there that's what happened JEV in paragraph 37 if the delays in the first trial are reasonable then you have to go to a second analysis so there could be lowered ceilings you could choose to keep the ceilings as they are or you could say there are no ceilings and that's in JEV the uh, Alberta Court of Appeal says that there shouldn't be a ceiling because it could lead the retrial judge to give undue attention to the delay in the retrial not the delays caused by the first trial and so I would submit that in this particular case the delay suffered by my client is unreasonable in any case the first trial a delay if you decide that the delays in the first trial should not uh, be considered then I submit that they are unreasonable in any case for the reasons that uh, I explained in my arguments and Justice Cassier maybe I wasn't clear in my ex in my answers I think I did understand the questions uh, but uh, what you've said to me is that what I said is that you have to uh, add the delays in all the trials but that's not what I'm arguing I'm saying first of all you have to look at whether the Crown has fulfilled its constitutional duties in the first trial if it's not the case and it decides to continue with a retrial Anderson says that the Crown is not protected if it has not uh, fulfilled its constitutional duties a motion can be uh, presented if the delays are considered responsible then it's up to you to decide if there should be a ceiling or if you should follow the model in JEV question if you I, I'd like to ask you if you are misunderstanding JEV paragraph 37 the court says bill in McIsaac that the constitutional clock should start running the moment a new trial is ordered and that it should start running from zero at that time i.e. no credit for any unused prior time prior to the presumptive limit for a charter compliant trial Why doing not? so is logical et voici la, le. doing so is logical in the absence of any suggestion that the time it took to complete the original trial was unreasonable mais attendez donc attendez si gac mackay so if Gak Maquet, maybe I'm mispronouncing it, 
this was a Quebec case. If you look at that Superior Court case in Quebec, the judge in that case said, We visit the delay for the first trial when no one suggested at the time that they were unreasonable. Alors voici, je sais pas si ça... So I don't know if that helps. The, the case you're relying on, I'm not sure that helps you because it, it said at the time. At the time, no motion was made. So as uh, my colleagues, Justice Brown and the Chief Justice, maybe this isn't a waiver. Maybe it's not a, a guilty or a fault, a, a faultable uh, inaction, but in a way, the accused made his bed. Well, if you look at paragraph seven or paragraph four, the last subparagraph, and I had it in front of me, but I don't seem to be able to find it right now, but the judge <coughs> summarized all the, the counsel, I'll help you go to paragraph 76 of your factum and you'll find, uh, you'll find what you're referring to. Yes, uh, thank you, um, Justice. So I believe my interpretation or my reading of paragraph 37 of JEV is accurate with all due respect. So what uh, the judge said was... ...upon to decide a motion for a stay of proceeding in a second trial, the reasonableness of the delays and compliance to the Jordan framework should be based on the circumstances and delays elapsed once the second trial is ordered it's important. In as much as the rights of the accused were not infringed under Section 11B of the Charger, the Charter, if he was first tried within a reasonable time. So, in other words, in JEV, the delays of the first trial were within the Jordan ceilings. If they hadn't been, perhaps the decision would have been different. But in JEV, it's the same thing. The Court of Appeal didn't deal with the first trial because the delay was felt to be reasonable. And in paragraph 37, which you just read, Justice Kazerer, it says, On use time prior to the presumptive limit for a charter-compliant trial. Donc, si le premier procès ne respectait pas la charte. So, if the first trial was a violation of the charter that's enough the analysis starts stops there but if it's reasonable then you do have to move to the retrial if, if the original delays were reasonable so i i feel that my interpretation of GACMAJ and uh, JEV my interpretation of those two cases in my opinion is correct now, I only have nine minutes left. I'd like to address some of the points that were raised. Uh, I, I have no way of knowing what decision you're going you're gonna to make in this case, but I would like to submit, with all due respect, that the verdict deliberations period was unreasonable. I don't have time to go back over all my arguments in my factum, but in a simple trial, eight months and 27 days for verdict deliberations is not reasonable and fair. 
and the Court of Appeal said, we can't see how over eight months, a delay of over eight months could cause so much confusion. The decision is incomprehensible, and it's a WD case, and uh, in my factum, I canvassed delays for verdict deliberations. On average, it's 3.2 months. So even if it were seven months, as my friend the Crown argued, that would not be too long. But in my submission, the entire delay needed to be considered. Because ask yourself this question. A two, the two months that brings us up to eight months and 27 days, what purpose did that serve? The decision was ultimately incomprehensible. This is not quality justice. So this not only affects JF, but it affects the repute of the entire justice system. So the delay was unreasonable. The decision was ultimately incomprehensible. And my friend talked about Montreal being a busy judicial district. But Justice Roy found that the long delay here was not caused by a lack of resources. So all those findings that the judge made weigh heavily. They're significant. And I would submit that in the uh, WD context, the presumption is reversed. And if the... Uh, Crown's appeal was upheld, then that's going to have to be, you're going to have to explain anyway. And then my other point is that uh, a, using a, an abusive procedure analysis would be oppressive in the circumstances. If a person were born when the complainant complained in this case, they would be in high school by now. That's 12 years. That's a, that's a lot of time in a person's life. Uh, 12 years is extremely long. And it's not just how much time it took. You have to look at the context, too. You have to look at... There's uh, an undermining of the integrity of this justice system here. But there were two problematic deliberations here. There were two decisions, two trials two decisions that are incomprehensible. So let's talk about respect for the justice system. That's a very relevant factor here. And when it comes to 62 months for the first trial, the Crown conceded that. And that's significant too, because 62 months, because you have to look at the global delay and its impact on the how oppressive the proceedings were. If JF had been responsible for that lengthy delay, that would have been uh, a relevant factor too. Now, when it comes to the 13 months uh, in the pre-charge period, obviously there would have been no stay of proceedings on that basis, but it is, it should enter into the calculation. And BABOS stands for the proposition that when conduct in and, that in and of itself is insufficient, to lead to a conclusion, uh, but at a certain point it all adds up and we have a problem. So continuing the procedures here would be oppressive. There's no remedy other than a stay that uh, provides adequate, uh, adequate compensation, if you will, for the prejudice 
suffered by my client. Now, it's true that the charges here were serious, but he was acquitted of them and got a stay of proceedings that was upheld by the Court of Appeal. I understand that it's before you now, and I respect that, but my client is 74 years old, and he explained how the effect of these long delays caused his health to deteriorate, and he not only had to keep the peace, he was limited in uh, how, how much he could travel and so on. So if ever you were to uphold the Crown's appeal and overturn the stay, just think of the consequences for the accused. And I sent you a short decision called PM, and in that decision there's a, an explanation in that case, the Court of Appeal was going to order a retrial, but they ordered a stay instead. So that's a very relevant decision for you to take into account. So for all those reasons, I would respectfully submit that you reject the Crown's appeal. And if you decide to uphold it, I would ask that you order a stay of proceedings on the basis of my arguments. Thank you for your time. Thank you, Council. Christine Mainville. Justices, I would like to directly address uh, the concern raised by yourself, Chief, Chief Justice, and Justices Brown and Kassirer. Um, it's important that we not lose sight that 11B rights are about getting to a trial on the merits without undue delay. The goal is not a stay. The goal is not the remedy. And that is the fundamental flaw with the Crown's argument on waiver and the Attorney General of Ontario's argument about the bright line rule uh, for bringing your application, uh, against bringing your application at the retrial. In Jordan, this court at paragraph 60 cited Justice Sapinka from Morin as saying that the purpose of Section 11B is to expedite trials and minimize prejudice. It is not to avoid trials on the merit. The problem with the Crown's position on waiver is that it presumes that the accused is indifferent towards delay when he seeks a trial on the merits. When in fact it is probably especially in those cases where the accused is eager to clear his name when he is seeking an acquittal, that he is trying to proceed with dispatch. The interest I in mean, an is, acquittal... Is it, is it realistic yes. that when uh, 11B was adopted, that the framers of the Constitution contemplated that if there was a second trial, in most instances, the accused would walk free? I mean, the purpose of the thing is for people to have a trial within a reasonable period, but when there's a second trial, the reasonable period has to be assessed with respect to the commencement of those proceedings, does it not? Um, thank you, Chief, uh, Justice Robe. Uh, and I think that brings us back to your earlier point about, you know, can you ask for both an acquittal and, or a, or a, a verdict uh, and, a, uh, and, and, and 
in the alternative, ask for a, a stay at trial. It's an interesting proposition. It, it's one that you could countenance, but I do want to make clear that sometimes an application is not brought. It may be because it's close to the line, right? And you're mid-trial, but once you add retrial delay, at that point in time, it, it simply becomes too on onerous, too lengthy for the accused. And so there shouldn't be a bar uh, in my submission for the judge at the second trial to look at the first trial delay in such a circumstance. And why can we not just say you have to raise it on appeal? Because the, on appeal, first of all, uh, we are allotted 30 pages <laughs> for, for an appeal. And our court does enforce that uh, quite rigidly. And so are you going to, uh, if, if, let's say there's been fundamental er errors about how the jury was instructed on the verdict, are you going to use up your time to bring a constitutional challenge for the first time on appeal? And, and it's also undermined by the here. Uh, the uh, a delay application in respect of uh, a first trial delay. I say the, the first trial judge and the second trial judge, the retrial judge, are in the exact same position to adjudicate it, but not the Court of Appeal. And that's why the Court of Appeal is hesitant to hear, to entertain these applications, because there's no complete record and they are not in the jurisdiction. But there is no difference between the second trial judge and the first trial. Why? Because in the most, uh, for the most part, the delay is pretrial. So some, and, and typically the, the, the application is brought prior to trial. And so it, typically the first time you ever encounter your trial judge is at the 11B motion. And so, and the, the evidentiary record can, can and will be created in the same way before the retrial judge as it would before the first trial judge. But would, uh, you, but would you, I'm sorry, would you agree that it would be much more preferable to present it before the first judge? I don't. I don't because uh, the the, the parties choose. are typically don't give evidence. The, the the parties, as happened in this case, actually often agree on the periods of the delay. They produce a chart, but but what happens is we produce uh, a typically a, an assistant or law clerk affidavit, sending out the timelines, at the various stages in the process, supplemented by correspondence, communications, and the transcripts, and that's what the record is. And that is, is what the record would be before the second judge. I, I see no advantage. So why can't a court of appeal do that then? Well, I suppose you could, but then you're into bringing fresh evidence on appeal and... Uh, right, but, but, but the, one of the arguments against the court of appeal that you recounted doing it is that they're not well-placed, right? They, they right. aren't the person who dealt with it in lower court, so I guess... And, and this court is open to, you know, the court, courts of appeal have been hesitant uh, to... Uh, to, to proceed, uh, and I, I think rightfully so, but if the court was clear that that's the most appropriate form, then that will be the most appropriate form. Uh, thank you very much. I, I see my time is up. But yes, thank you. Maître Saint-Amand Guinois. Mr. Saint-Amand Guinois. Thank you, Chief Justice, Justices. I'd like to begin by answering some of the questions that were raised when it comes to the accused silence, I would refer you to page 790 of uh, Morin. Sometimes silence is just a consent of the inevitable. I don't think the court should uh, state that silence 
almost automatically means that there's an admission that there was no prejudice caused by past delays. Question. In that case, how can we give probative value to uh, Jordan that states that all parties, including the accused, have the duty to be proactive and not just wait? Answer. We argue that the trial judge should analyze that because the trial judge is in the best position to assess whether science is being used as, as a weapon and the trial judge can reject motions that are frivolous. It's always the trial judge that can assess this and assess if the parties are helping the case proceed. So sometimes silence is just a consent uh, of the inevitable, and I can also say that it's up to the prosecution to bring the accused to a uh, trial. The accused is not responsible for the court availability, court dates, so sometimes you have to prepare for hearings, and I don't think it should be necessarily held against the accused. Question, what is the impact of the idea change of culture? What does that mean, change of culture for criminal lawyers? Answer, we have to do everything we can to help proceedings move forward. Sometimes accused persons can choose to opt for an acquittal rather than a stay of proceedings. That is up to the accused. It is their right to make that choice. And I would refer you to the Cody decision. Paragraph, paragraphs 33-34. You cannot uh, claim that there's an illegitimate behavior on the part of the accused there's an analogy this uh, right to full answer in defense is not hierarchically superior you shouldn't have to choose between 11b and the right to full answer and defense those rights can coexist accused must act quickly. Jordan is clear on that. But when court dates uh, are requested or a motion is uh, made, is moved, it's up to the trial judge to decide these things. There should not be a an inflexible rule that uh, is imposed upon those trial judges in that regard. When it comes to Justice Cote's question, the difference between acquittal and uh, a guilty a verdict. If an appeal occurs, there was an error, whether it benefits uh, the prosecution or the accused, it makes no difference. And to answer Justice Kazir's question this morning, whether an appeal is dead on arrival, we submit that that 
question isn't necessarily uh, crucial. There can be uh, delays that can go up to five years, and so the issue is not necessarily dead on arrival. The court can examine very important uh, issues uh, at law. The interpreter signals that the sound quality is not very good. If there's a, a delay of uh, 10 months, if you look at Kojeko, there was a methodology that was uh, laid out there. So And it stated that uh, motions had to be moved in that case. The interpreter signals that the sound quality is not good. Oui, bonjour. Place à la cour. Mr. Hijazi. Yes, uh, good morning. May it please the court. How do you calculate these delays? The, a global approach where all delays were taken into account, that would be fair because you can't completely ignore the very real effect of a lengthy trial, for a lengthy first tri trial. But it is difficult to define and, and <coughs> implement a global approach. So some periods could be subtracted, but when there's multiple proceedings, how do you add them all up? Do you, uh, is there a waiting factor? It becomes very tricky. It's more logical to follow the Jordan framework, and that's what the Court of Appeal from Alberta used in JEF. ceiling is also needed for the retrial. So we agree with starting the clock over again as of the moment when the new trial is ordered. But there are two caveats the ceiling must be shorter for the second trial, for the retrial, and it must not be forgotten that there was an original trial that may have lasted years, and the effects of that on the accused uh, from the very beginning. And there are collective interests at stake too, and that must not be forgotten ever from, as of the, from the very beginning. So the Crown is taking a risk if they decide to proceed with the retrial. The Crown is exposed to the risk of a stay of proceedings. And there's a significant presumption if the original trial was lengthy that those delays were unreasonable. Everyone agrees that the retrial should proceed more quickly and should have priority treatment should be expedited. So six months for provincial court and eight months those for superior court, those ceilings must necessarily be shorter for a retrial. A retrial is a whole different world. Many issues have already been dealt with. So the numbers we would propose are based on Morin and Askov. They talk about six to eight months of institutional delay being acceptable. There may have been a preliminary inquiry or a waiver of that. Uh, so the retrial doesn't need to go through all that, to rehash all that. 
and uh, there's the Creglia case, which proposes five to eight months, and uh, six months was suggested in another uh, case, six to eight months. So just quickly, that's a reasonable proposal in our view, and it fits with the Jordan framework. It gives predictability, it allows for time to proceed, and it would allow a retrial to occur within a reasonable time. So if we apply that in concrete terms, I can see various scenarios. If the first trial was under 30 months, it's presumed reasonable. The second, the retrial has to be expeditious, uh, we would say between six to eight months. If the first trial goes beyond 30 months, the individual should be able to move and there would be a review of the delays. They should be able to move for uh, state of proceedings. And if, it, if the first delay is judged to be unreasonable, then there's no reason, no, no reason to proceed with the analysis. But if the first trial was reasonable, then the counter is reset and the second trial should occur within six to eight months. If the accused wants to complain about delays that occurred prior to the retrial, the Jordan framework requires him to show that he was proactive and did everything he could to move the file ahead. So as Jordan said, this is a simple and fair mechanism that's uh, what should be applied, uh, and that is our submission. Thank you, Council. Reply, Mr. Tremblay, or, or Mr. Abra. Unless you have any questions for the appellant, we have no reply today. Thank you, Council. I'd like to thank all Council. The court will reserve judgment. Good day.